Hello and welcome to all of our listeners. I am Erin Clapper and this is the Clinical Specialist in Neuromodulation Podcast. On today's episode, we sit down with Taylor Cahill, physician assistant from Edina, Minnesota. We're joined today by my fellow clinical specialist, Amber Price, who has been an integral part of the beautiful relationship our Minnesota team has with this pain practice. Her dedication to supporting this account has been recognized by not only her teammates, but it's quite apparent to the providers at the practice as well. Taylor allows us to peek into the life of an advanced practice provider and appreciate her perspective, struggles, and focus for pain patients. I hope you enjoy our episode with Taylor and Amber. My name is Amber Price. I'm a clinical specialist in the Minnesota region. I'm focusing on the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And I'm Taylor, uh, Taylor Cahill. I'm a certified physician assistant, and I work at Neuro Precision Pain Management in Edina, Minnesota. So, Taylor, um, Neuro is a very well-known practice in the in the Minnesota and even nationwide, actually, with the Abbott name. Um, so can you kind of describe to us as, like, what kind of practice it is and your role as an advanced practice provider? Sure. Neuro uh, is a multidisciplinary interventional pain clinic. Uh, so what we do is we focus on image-guided, precision, targeted interventions to try to alleviate a patient's pain at the source. So we offer targeted epidural injections, nerve blocks and ablations, and implantable devices such as the spinal cord stimulators. Um, and work closely with Abbott on that. And then we also offer the intrathecal pain pump. So we combine these high-tech, minimally invasive procedures with physical therapy sessions and behavioral health consultations, uh, both of which we have in-house at Neura to help the patient obtain better day-to-day function, overall improved quality of life. Uh, all of this works towards finding a safer and more effective pain management option than chronic high-dose oral opioid use. Um, as an APT at Neura, I work in collaboration with our physicians, and I see patients in the clinic to assess their pain. I recommend interventions, and I manage their medications. Um, patients with the spinal cord stimulators are managed the same as um, all of our other patients, but they have the added bonus of getting to meet with you, Amber, and other Abbott representatives on an as-needed basis to make adjustments to their stimulators. Can you kind of describe how the patients are managed within your guys' practice? Like I said before, just the patients with stimulators are managed the same as all of our patients. Um, so we, we're seeing them in clinic. I see a patient with a spinal cord stimulator. Sometimes they're still on medication. Um, so when they come to me in clinic, I'm still just assessing their pain like I'm assessing any other patient um, that comes to the clinic. And so I'm figuring out you know, how they're functioning on a day-to-day basis, what their pain level is, what they're doing to try to help with their pain, what's working for them, what's not. Um, and then in all of that, obviously, the spinal cord stimulator that they have is one of the many tools that we offer to help try to alleviate their pain. So I'm also asking them then, in addition to their medication and their physical therapy and their behavioral health visits and using ice and medications and all the things that we do um, to try to manage chronic pain, I'm asking them, you know, how do you feel your stimulator is working for you? Um, you know, do you feel like you're getting relief from it? Like, have you been getting relief since you first got it? Has anything changed since I last saw you in regards to your stimulator? Are you having any problems? Do you feel like you need to have it adjusted? Is there one area of your pain that you feel or, yeah, one area of your body that you feel like the stimulator should be providing you pain relief of or coverage of and you feel like you're not because we could try to see if we can have you meet with one of the reps to adjust your simulator. Um, so if at any point they feel as though their simulator needs to be adjusted or they have questions about it, then, you know, that's when I'm in touch with our representatives and I'm bringing you guys in to try um, to make those adjustments or get better coverage of a patient's pain. Stimulators have obviously been around for a while, but I feel like they've doubled in volume and adoption in like the last five to seven years. Do you, have you noticed like a transition or a change from, you know, using one company to another company? 
So I personally can't speak specifically to that only because I'm newer to the chronic pain world and I've only been doing this for a year. Uh, however, mm. you know, I know that um, other providers in our practice and especially Dr. David Schultz, who is the owner um, and CEO of Neura, uh, he has been doing this for years and years and years. And yes, the transition has um, has been pretty, pretty great. I know that uh, for a while, Years ago, we were using a different type of simulator from a different company, then transitioned to a different one, and now we've, we're mainly working with Abbott. I would say the majority of our patients are getting Abbott simulators, and I think that's just a testament to, you know, how medicine and science is, is that we're always progressing and we're always finding new technology um, that's going to be more effective for people over time. So, you know, at this point, obviously, we have it versus technology, and so... Typically, when I'm talking to a patient about a simulator now, um, I, I tell them that there's a bunch of different types of stimulators, but um, the type that we recommend or that I recommend as a provider is an Abbott stimulator. And then I talk to them about, you know, the burst technology and how it's able to kind of mimic how our body and our nervous system is sending signals so it can better block those signals from being sent to their brain. So that's kind of how I talk to them about it in clinic. So what are some of the procedures and diagnosis you see coming into your practice that you would then recommend spinal cord stimulation? Sure. So, I mean, our practice sees patients with chronic and persistent pain at any location of their body. Uh, low back pain is probably the most common patient complaint that we see, but as we know, pain can affect any area of the body. Uh, we see people who have been dealing with um, pain for one week to 50 plus years. Some patients have had surgeries to try to help alleviate their pain and others have not. Um, when we're dealing with neck and thoracic and low back pain, we see disc degeneration, we see disc herniation, and we see facet arthropathy, spinal stenosis. Uh, we often are seeing failed low back syndrome, which means that a patient's had surgery and attempt to correct the structural is issue in their spine. Um, and attempt to alleviate their pain, but they continue to have pain following surgery. And then all sorts of other things as well. Um, and then the other part of your question was, how do we determine who's a good candidate for simulators? Um, would be someone who has gone through kind of our whole interventional algorithm. Um, so like I mentioned before, there are a lot of different um, targeted type of injections or therapies that we offer. Um, and if a patient has gone through all of those, so say they've gotten an epidural injection, they've tried a nerve block or a nerve ablation, um, and those have not provided them sufficient or long enough lasting relief, then typically what I would do if I felt it was appropriate based on their imaging or their presentation would possibly refer them to a surgeon to see if they're a surgical candidate. Um, and if they are and choose to proceed, then they would proceed with surgery. But if we've kind of gone through all of these minimally invasive procedures, we've had them con consult a surgeon um, and they're not a surgical candidate or they've had surgery that hasn't corrected their pain, um, then depending on kind of what I see as their diagnosis, um, I would possibly entertain the option of discussing a spinal cord stimulator with them and talking them through like the trial process. Um, but again, there are certain diagnoses that do and do not kind of fit into um, the spinal cord stimulator tract for a patient. Obviously, you have, you know, those candidates that stick out that would be a great candidate. But of course, you want to try those minimally invasive procedures on the front end to see if those um, are effective towards their pain. Um, yeah. But are there any patients that you, like, right off the bat know that they won't be a good candidate for spinal cord stimulation and why? Um, so the people who are not good candidates um, typically are patients who have significant untreated mental health comorbidities um, or those who have active addiction problems um, or people who have distress regarding having an implanted device. Um, we always at Neura have all of our patients um, who are considering the spinal cord simulator trials meet with our um, psychologists or counselors prior to proceeding with the trial just to get a good feel of, um, you know, if they would be able to um, mentally handle having an implanted device and if that would be something that would be good for them moving forward. 
Um, additionally, uh, one thing that we see are patients with spinal stenosis. Um, and if we think about spinal stenosis, it's a little bit different. Um, so what, what we have when we see patients with spinal stenosis is they have a structural problem where their spinal canal is too narrow to transmit the spinal cord or the nerve roots without getting compressed. Um, it, it happens especially when patients are standing upright and then gravity forces um, cause compression of the disc or the ligament into the spinal canal. Um, the spinal cord stimulator does nothing to address this structural problem. It can't fix or open up the spinal canal at all. Um, so spinal stenosis is often better treated with surgery or we manage it with steroid injections to increase space in the canal by reducing the swelling. Um, but if those patients are not surgical candidates and they're not responding to epidurals, you know, then maybe we would try a stimulator, and sometimes it can help a little bit. You kind of went into my next question that I was going to ask you is, um, you know, would you consider spinal cord stimulation for stenosis patients? Um, so great. Um, I love that. And what is your biggest struggle um, that you deal with as an advanced practice provider? Chronic pain is just honestly challenging to deal with. Um, for anyone, um, as a provider, when I'm working with patients, honestly, it's challenging to have the time and the resources just to deal with the many factors that contribute to chronic pain. Um, there's significant socioeconomic factors and mental health factors that play a really large role. Um, it's also really hard to get patients to kind of buy into our approach or neuro's approach to pain management, especially if they've been taking high doses of oral opioids for a really long time. Um, they take a pill and it makes them feel better, um, and so they think that that's the best course of action for them. When we know in the medical community that long, long-term long use of high-dose oral opioids really is not helpful for chronic pain, um, over time patients can get um, opioid-induced hyperalgesia. They can become dependent or addicted on these opioids. Um, and then, of course, there's that risk of um, accidental or intentional overdose with the use of opioids. And a big thing is that if you look at studies, many patients on long-term opioids have an overall decrease in their functional ability, which is completely the opposite of what you would want when you're, you know, prescribing a medication or a therapy for a patient. Um, so that's that's kind of my biggest struggle. Um, and, and a lot of times I get these patients who have been prescribed high-dose medications from a doctor for years and years and years, and that's what they're used to, and, and I completely understand that. If I was in that situation, I would probably be the same way. So it's spending a lot of time, you know, getting, um, you know, garnering tr trust from your patients and and just being patient and going over again and again, you know, that I'm here to help them and I want to do it in a safe way and kind of getting them to to trust that I have their best intention at heart and getting them to kind of uh, be willing to try all of the other things that we have to offer them for their pain management. So as you know, like as you mentioned before, we work really closely together. And so as like as reps, um, we have an idea of how we fit into the patient selection process. Maybe describe the importance of like the collaboration and what it can mean to be like a good or trial to implant outcome type of thing? So when I'm seeing a patient in clinic and I start thinking that they may possibly benefit from a stimulator in the future, I immediately start discussing with them. Even if it's, you know, if we're really on in the process or they're a new patient to me, um, I kind of have a, a pretty good idea of who may be heading that direction. And so I just start addressing it with them at that point because um, they're going to need repetition. They're going to need review. They're going to have questions. So um, they need time to understand what the simulator is, why and how it would help, what the trial process is like, and what the outcome is that we're looking to achieve, and then how we can get there together. Um, it's at this point, you know, even if it's early on that I look into setting up a meeting between the patient and then um, an Abbott representative. So I tell my patients that we always have Abbott reps in clinic to educate them on the simulator and when and if they choose to have a simulator, they can make the adjustments to the simulators. Um, so then I set up the appointment between the rep and the patient and, and I'll meet with one of, one of you guys, one of the reps, and I'll just say, you know, here's this patient, this is what's going on with them. 
you know, we're here in the process, but I think we might be moving towards a simulator. They have questions about X, Y, and Z, or can you just address this with them? Um, and so and then during this meeting, that's when the patient's able to ask any and all their questions of the rep regarding the simulator and the process. Um, I think this meeting plays a really significant role because it allows the patient to become more comfortable with and informed and excited about the prospect of trialing a simulator. Uh, so I think this collaboration with the Abbott representative um, continues and then even increases when we move into the trial phase. Because during the trial, it's really important that the rep be contacting the patient daily to answer questions and make adjustments as needed to ensure that the patient's having you know, the most successful trial possible. Uh, if at any point the rep thinks that perhaps the trial is not as successful as it could be for one reason or another, you know, they should be then reaching out to the providers to discuss and formulate a plan on how to improve the situation. And I know, Amber, you and I have done that before. I've done that with other reps that I work with where they're like, you know, this patient hasn't had um, the best luck during their trial. However, they have this going on in their life or this happened and, you know, maybe we talk about extending the trial or making adjustments in one way or another um, to ensure that it's really, you know, the best trial that it can be. So I really think that reps are an invaluable part of the neurostim process. You guys are the experts in the technical workings of the simulation systems, and you understand the latest options for programming, and you're in communication with all the scientists inside of the technology companies to provide latest guidance for the patients and the implanting teams. And so this way, then working with you, we can best optimize um, the advanced neurostimulation systems that your company has spent the years perfecting. Great. No, I mean, I love that process and I love working with you and your team um, at Neuro. Like it's just, it's, we, you guys have such a steady and smooth process there that you kind of know the next option and the next step. And it just, we got a communication piece down for the most part. And so I, I mm -hmm. truly enjoy working with you and your colleagues and in the whole process of um, the teamwork aspect. So that's great. Yes. We um, like having you guys around too. <laughs> Taylor, can you give some examples of uh, therapeutic versus diagnostic interventions and continuation be both? So therapeutic procedures include injections of the local anesthetic or steroid mixtures um, and those are designed to reduce pain and inflammation of nerves and or the spinal cord so that our physical therapy sessions can then be more successful with our patients. Um, by putting out the fire of the inflammation, this often leads to pain relief and improved function. Um, we also offer radiofrequency nerve ablation procedures, and those are therapeutic procedures aimed at eliminating the pain-sensing nerves. Um, these diagnostic interventions are aimed at determining whether a structure, so the facet joint of the spine, the disc, or the nerve root, is the source for chronic pain so that these interventional procedures or possibly surgeries in the future can be targeted precisely to the true source of the pain. Uh, we believe that if a therapeutic procedure relieves pain and the pain does not return, uh, then we don't serve the patient by using um, diagnostic procedures to identify the pain generator. So basically we think, you know, if the pain is gone, who, care, who cares uh, where it came from? Um, we use stimulator more as a therapeutic type intervention. So obviously, I guess the way I would think of a stimulator trial is kind of diagnostic in that um, obviously we'll know that their pain is neuropathic pain if a stimulator is working for them. And then implanting it um, and using it is a therapeutic function of the stimulator. So you can be super honest. What are the things for us to stay away from doing and then things that we should continue to do? So, yeah, I don't want you to think that um, this example is in regards to any Abbott reps or anyone in particular. But one thing that I would say um, as a representative for any medical company, um, it's, important, it's important to know kind of your, your role in the team and to not overstep those boundaries. So, um, yes, you obviously know and love the simulator and you want all of your, all of the patients to, to trial a simulator and get relief from a simulator, but it's really important to know, um, and trust that the providers that you're working with are using, 
um, the medical knowledge that they have and the resources they have, and they have the patient's best interest in heart as well. And so if they're not recommending a stimulator at a certain point in time, you know, don't push it too hard. Don't bring it up to the patient without, you know, consulting um, the provider first. Uh, it's kind of you have to defer to the provider's judgment at that point in time. Um, so I would say that's one big thing to just kind of, you know, stay. We all need to just kind of stay in our lane when we're working and remember kind of what our role is in the process and not step outside of bounds or anything like that. Um, but I obviously don't see that often, and it's not been a problem. Um, that's just one thing I think of with regard to representatives. Um, and some of the best things, um, honestly, I've already said this, I've spoken to how much we love working with our Abbott reps um, at Neuro. So mm -hmm. everything they do is great, honestly. <laughs> I think one of the best things is that they're really, really available anytime we need them. So, I mean, I have everyone's cell phone number in my cell phone program that anytime I have a question or I need something, I can reach out and they're available or they get back to me as soon as they can. Um, even when we're not asking for them or saying we need anything, they're always popping into our office just saying, hey, how's it going? Can I get you anything? Are you guys stocked up on brochures? Is there a patient you want me to see today? I mean, they're just constantly there asking if they can be of assistance. And oftentimes I don't have anyone scheduled, but then I'm like, oh, wait, yes, you know, I'm seeing this patient. I bet they'd probably at this point benefit from some education for you. Um and even when they're not able to see one of my patients in clinic because they're booked somewhere else or they're in surgery or something, um, they're always willing to call the patient later and check in with them. And then they get back to me with kind of what has happened, what what they think we might need to do for the patient or if they got them back on track. And so just the communication piece and, and the fact that they're always willing to go, you know, above and beyond to help us and to help our patients has just been really great. What drew you into that job role? And then actually what brought you into the pain world? Sure. Um, so it was a long process for me. I think I always knew I wanted to work in medicine, but for the longest time I thought I wanted to go to medical school and be in a doctor. Um, that changed in college for me, actually. So I was pre-med and then I heard about a, what the physician assistant role was. And honestly, I had not heard of it before. So when I started to learn about it, I did some more research, and then I actually shadowed some PAs, and I just realized that they played a really integral role in healthcare and that they could do just about everything I was hoping to do as far as um, practicing medicine and helping patients. Um, but some of the draws for me was that it's less schooling, so I only had to go for an additional two and a half years in my program. Um, instead of the long four years of med school and four years of residency. And then I just felt that I might have a little bit more um, of the ability to have a flexible job in the future, a PA as opposed to an MD. And um, I'm hoping to have kind of a bigger family um, in the years to come. And so I thought that this would be a better fit for me personally. And then as far as getting into chronic pain, um, honestly, when I came out of school, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to specialize in or what kind of practice I wanted to work in. But the one thing that I did know, um, and I've known for a long time, was that I wanted to help kind of underserved populations. So for a long time, I thought that meant working in community health. So a lot of my PA school rotations were in community health settings and working with um, those who, you know, um, in rural communities or those with lower incomes um, or who had different socioeconomic factors um, that made life a little more challenging for them. And so um, I did that. And then I realized once in my one of my family medicine rotations, I had a patient who came in and um, it was a gentleman dealing with chronic pain and and the way that the provider acted was kind of just like, oh, this guy again, like, he just wants more pain medicine, and I don't know what to do with him. And, and he was a super nice guy, and I could tell he was just in pain. And, and he he just needed help. And, and I left that encounter with him, um, 
really disheartened just seeing the reaction from the provider. And I don't think it was anything against her. I think she just did not have tools that she needed to be able to help him. And so um, anytime we don't have those tools or we're unable to do something, it can be exasperating. And so I think that's where her reaction came from. But I also just felt bad because, you know, I'm going into medicine and I want to be able to help people. And she just wasn't able to help him. And, and I knew that there was a way we could, um, just said that in that setting we couldn't. And so that's kind of what started to draw me towards chronic pain. And obviously those patients are definitely an underserved population because yes, we know it's challenging to work with. Um, and it's no fault of the patients either. If you or I lived with pain constantly, I can't imagine what that would be like, right? Um, I would probably be um, a little bit more on edge to myself. So so being able to reach out to those patients and, and help them when a lot of other providers are not able to um, has been really great. I often am seeing patients in clinic who are like, I've just been dealing with this for years. I've seen so many doctors. I'm just tired. Like, I just want help. And and then I always tell them, well, I'm really happy that you're here because I think we can help you. And then most of the time we are able to. So it's been really rewarding. Nice. Do you see anything on the horizon that maybe thing that really excites you? I know that just in general for pain management, um, there's always going to be uh, studies done to work, to, especially for, I think, arthritis pain. There's a new monoclonal antibody that's just approved by the FDA. Um, so just different types of medications that can be more effective and safer for patients to use um, if we do need to use medications to to manage pain. Um, I know that surgeries and procedures are every day becoming more minimally invasive. And so patients who have disc issues can can now be offered a different type of surgery or procedure that's more um, less invasive, easier to do, um, doesn't involve a long stay in, in uh, the hospital. And that's going to be really helpful for them too. But Obviously, medicine every day is changing, and so, you know, if we did this podcast again in another year, I'm sure there's something else we'd be able to talk about. What are some of, like, your your hardest parts of the day? You know, oftentimes, I don't know if um, you guys as Abbott reps would have really a role in being able to help some of my hardest parts of my day, though I really wish you could take some Uh some burden off. (laughs) Um, I think the most challenging thing, obviously, is just seeing these patients on really high doses of opioids. We know it's not safe. Um, And so my my biggest goal is to make sure that my patients are staying safe. And so Lots of times um, people will come to me in clinic from other providers, other places, and they'll be on really high doses of these opioids, and I just know it's not safe. And regardless of if they've been on them a week or 10 years, you know, it just takes that, that one time for an accident to happen or for them to be ill and then um, add their medication and then something could go terribly wrong. So I know I can't push people um, to decrease their opioid use too fast, but also I'm really trying to get them through our interventional algorithm to find something that is effective for them. And of course there's 10,000 hoops we have to jump through to get through each thing, um, especially thanks to insurance regulations. Uh, So, you know, patients are required to do so many sessions of physical therapy before I can get them injections. They have difficulty with transportation. Um, There's just a lot of factors that play into um, prolonging our process of working them through the the injections um, and eventually, finally, if needed, getting them to the stimulator trial. Um, it's not very frequently that we hop directly to a stimulator just because, you know, obviously if there's something that's less invasive um, and has less risk to it, then we should, you know, ethically we need to be going that route. Um, but if it's not effective, you know, then we're going to go to a stimulator. So it's just that interim part where they're still requiring high doses of opioids and I'm still trying to safely manage them, but also, you know, fix all these issues to get them through this process as, as quickly and safely as I can. So if we need to get to the stimulator trial, we can be there. And, and then once we have something in place that's effective for their pain management, you know, then and that's when I can start trying to decrease their oral opioid use. Um, I certainly don't want to take something away 
without giving them something in place to help manage their pain. Uh, so the faster that I can find something that's effective, the better for the patient. So I think that's one of the big things that I, that's challenging at my job is just to make sure that I'm doing everything I can, um, jumping through all the hoops for our patients and, and working to get them um, something that's effective for their pain so they don't have to take these unsafe medications forever. I just wanted to say thank you so much for Taylor for taking time to, you know, go through these some of our questions and, you know, just sharing your side of how you manage patients and how you are helping patients each and every day and um just getting some feedback. Like Amber said, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. I don't mind at all. I love it. Thank you oh, guys. Good. Well I hope that you stay safe. Hopefully a couple more weeks maybe one more month and then yeah. hopefully we're back on, on track to normal again. Thank you, you Taylor. Taylor. You're welcome, right. Amber. Bye. Right. Bye. Bye. And now a word from our sponsor, Abbott SCS Tips. Hey, Bob. Wondering if you got any of that liquid look from Harry left over that I could use. What for? I've got my first programming coming up and I could really use a little help. Come on, let's get serious. You don't need any luck or to pull a Hermione. All you need to do is review Tom Riddle's diary for the latest and greatest information. Wow, that sounds so easy. It seems ridiculous. It is. You'll find helpful tips like always keep a socially acceptable distance between your anode and cathode. Leave an empty space between to allow energy to flow out of the cathode and pull that energy with your positive electrode in the direction you want it to move. Or another, remember the journey principle. Don't stop with that tonic stimulation until they're believing that they can really feel it. That way, you can confidently use the configuration in bursts. Or, when you're assessing amplitude and burst DR, don't forget to tell your patient they could feel a slight slithering feeling up their legs before they sense any tingling. If so, you found the point at which you can now get your, your abacus and multiply it by 0.6. Don't forget, nothing over 0.7 milliamps. Or, how about those angiocat- Wait, you mean blue introns? Well, yes, but no, you're in my world, Grandma, and I mean angiocaths. These can be an integral tool during a case. When you can't advance a lead and need some more stability and structure in the lead, you can replace the needle with an angiocast to give structure to the lead down at the proximal end in order to poke through the tissue up at the higher epidural space. But remember, you've got to twist it in. It's all in the fingertips, and you've got to twist it in in order to get past that ligament into the epidural space. Otherwise, it'll just kink and the whole process is useless. Oh my God, this is never going to stop, is it? Just one more example. Have you ever wondered why we cycle the burst waveform? Well, look no further, because Tom answers this as well. The huge chain reaction of nerve cells signaling the burst waveform from one nerve to the next allows patients to have a sustained carryover effect. We're enabling the body to help block those pain signals, and this effect can be sustained over periods as long as six minutes between firing. About half of those patients enrolled in our recent study were able to sustain that relief with as little as under two hours of therapy a day. Golly, that's quite a diary. Where can I get my hands on these statistics and information? I'll Lego you in on a secret. You won't have to go into the restricted section of the library. You can find all of this out on our Lego app. There are volumes of tips, tricks, and details just waiting to be watched by you. Thanks, Bob. I feel ready to go now. Thank you. Don't mention it. Hello, um, my name is Amber Price. I am a clinical specialist, too, based out of Minneapolis, um, St. Paul area. And I have been with Abbott for about a year and a half now. Um, just a kind of little background on me prior to Abbott um, or joining the Abbott team is that I have a total, including Abbott, I have about three and a half years of experience in the neuromodulation space. Um, previously, I worked as a STEM coordinator um, within a high-volume practice down in Austin, Texas, um, and they were a privately-owned team practice. Why I say high volume practice is because this practice had eight neuromodulators, um, three of those being implanters and one of those being a neurosurgeon for paddle implants. Um, so my key role for the job was to just um, work with the physicians once they identified a patient, um, track each patient, be sure they moved smoothly along the authorization process and from trial to perm and et cetera, um, and then follow up appointments as well. So I was kind of just the point person for the patient and the decision just because I could 
primarily just focus more so on skin patients in that role. Um, I would also work very closely with um, the reps, um, including our the local ABBA reps down um, in Texas that we worked with. Um, and primarily my communication between the rep was just basically getting updates to the doctor and assist with any additional visits um, during the trial um, that was maybe needed. Um, and then lastly, I would just um, communicate with the rep um, on fit like trial and surgery times and then just communicating between the physician and the rep on any um, equipment that was maybe needed that the physician was requesting during those surgeries. So that's primarily my background. Um, and since I loved my job so much as a STEM coordinator, I was curious about the rep side of things. And so I was willing to relocate from Texas to Minnesota, which is my home state, um, to take on a clinical specialist role um, with Abbott. So and that's just a little bit about me. <laughs> How have you found the transition from, you know, being on one side of the table to the other side? So my role from transitioning from like a STEM coordinator to a rep um, directly working for Abbott is that I felt like the transition process was very smooth at the beginning because I felt like I already know how to knew how to communicate with the patients or the physicians and kind of knew what the clinics or physicians were maybe expecting from a rep role just because I had been on the other side of the table. Um, and then um, I was, you know, I really got to dive into more of you know, the sales side of things and kind of like the more of like the the data and the research behind the technology and how that works specifically. And so that's kind of what, you know, has really kept me interested in the job is just learning the, how the evidence behind um, Abbott's proprietary waveform and how it sets it so different from everybody else um, and why it's so successful. Okay. So um, right now, what gets you really excited about being with Abbott? What gets me excited about being in stimulation and working with Abbott specifically is that I get to work with patients, you know, that have a very poor quality of life and they rely on medication and, um, they're not, you know, they're not able to be as active enough and we're able to, you know, where a patient starts and where they can finish at the end of a trial. So can you go into a story of a patient that has, you know, touched your life? So I have a couple. Um, this, one, um, this one has really stuck with me, and this was actually a patient about a year ago. She, it was a, a, a low back um, bilateral leg patient, and she had to quit her part-time job. She was using a walker because she was so reliant on it. She could only walk, you know, from like the bathroom door to the toilet is without her walker. That was like the distance she could walk. And her goal was, you know, not to be so reliant on her walker. And um, she had accepted these goals or these expectations for me during, prior to the trial. We did the procedure very smoothly, sound um, recovery, got perfect coverage, you know, set the expectations for the patient that, you know, our goal is 50%. Well, the next day she said she was feeling better. And I didn't know quite what better was for her until the next day. I spoke with her day two or day three. Is she was saying that she was walking around her house without her walker. And I instantly just got the goosebumps. Well, the day of her lead pull, she comes into the clinic and she's walking without her walker. And she's like, it worked, Amber. It really worked. And, you know, and I instantly started to just develop some tears um, and she just gave up, came up to me and gave me this big hug and was so ecstatic. And she even had her, um, I think it was a friend um, that was with her and her friend couldn't believe it either. And so to this day, she will call randomly, just check in, you know, or I'll call her. And But really, she's, she's living her life. Um, and she actually is back to volunteering, not working full time or part time, but she's able to volunteer and at least get up and active out of her home. What would be your favorite therapy and why? I love the burst technology just because um, it sets us so different from other technologies um, just because one, they don't have to feel the therapy and um, we're able to, you know, affect both the medial and the lateral side of the brain. So with the burst DR therapy, we're targeting the medial, the brain, medial side of the brain of how they think about their pain. So where patients maybe still have their pain 50% or 60% of the time, but they're not thinking about it. So they're able to reduce that pain even further. Um, 
And so I've just seen a lot of patients come out of it, um, more so on that permanent or after the implant that saying that their families are noticing a, a positive effect as well with their emotions and how they're not, you know, reacting as harshly as they normally maybe have been. What do you think that is one thing in your practice as a clinical specialist that's given you the best uh, return on investment? Developing relationships with the practice and the patients, you know, truly showing them that you're there to help the patient. Um, You know, a lot of a lot of people can get caught up in, you know, in the movement and, you know, making um, other moves within the company. But, you know, primarily if you like Abbott is very well known if we're patient patient centric and just solely focusing on that aspect of things. And I think that's what really makes us drive as a company. Um, and so I just, I, I really, I'm stuck on that because that's what keeps me going every day is just putting the patient first and being, or just knowing how important we are to the patient um, because they want somebody to care about them as them too. So what skills do you rely upon the most um, as a clinical specialist? Um, I would say communication, follow through and just really engaging with your team and your physicians um, and their advanced practice providers, um, keeping them up to date on the newest and the newest forms of, you know, data and what Abbott has to offer. What's your favorite part about the job? My favorite part of this job is one, being able to travel and not be in one place all day. Um, as a rep, we're constantly on the go as a clinical, excuse me, we're constantly on the go, bouncing from one doctor's office to another, meeting one patient to another, you know, always trying to accommodate what's best for the patient. And so not being in one spot all day is what I love. And then going into that, I love being in the OR and jumping from case to case and really, you know, making sure that the patient's comfortable prior to the surgery. And then one, really engaging with the physicians and troubleshooting with different scenarios with the and with the physician. And, you know, um, I work with one of the top, trialing and implanting physicians in Minnesota. So he's got a lot of great, unique techniques. And I learn from him every day. And, you know, I'm able to share a couple things with him here and there too. But it's nice because I get to, you know, share other techniques with other physicians. And maybe, you know, that kind of works in my benefit, um, being able to take that and, you know, just, you know, getting to teach the doctors a, a thing or two is kind of nice because, you know, they already know so much. So that's that's my favorite part of the job. What do you feel like is the biggest challenge you have with your role right now? And do you have any plans or ideas of how to, you know, overcome it or change it? Um, I would say my biggest challenge is, one, managing patient phone calls at all hours of the day. Um, it's hard to kind of find that work balance of, you know, finding family time and you, like you, your self-care time. And then, um, you know, just really trying to also accommodate the patient at the same time. And so, but we have developed this number where all patients can call and we will rotate between team members on who is taking the the on-call number for the weekend or that week. Um, Sometimes we're able to allow one clinical or rep to, you know, be home office for the day, managing all patient phone calls and scheduling items. Um, so they're strictly working on administration work. So we can, so for the reps or clinicals that are in the field, they're primarily able to, you know, focus time with the physician and face-to-face patient appointments, you know, and, you know, doing those business plans or setting up APP lunches and dinners um, um, face-to-face, you know, within the practice the practices that we work in. So we have found a huge um, change in kind of gears and helping each other stay sane for the most part on keeping up with patient phone calls. So you say you would say that it's had a really positive impact? Yes, I would say. Um, and it, and also the, the clinics will use that too because if they can't get a hold of somebody specifically because they might be in an, an, an OR for say, they, look, they will call that on-call number and then we'll have a somebody pick that up and then we can direct it um, as needed. What was one thing you wish you had known when you took the job? I know you had a unique position of having an intimate relationship with stimulation beforehand, but what was something that was unique when you took it and you didn't realize? I would say that one, I wasn't 
ready to, you know, manage with all the inventory, honestly. And I was a big surprise, you know, because it's like, it was a very unique piece because it falls back on us if we're not keeping a, a close eye on it, you know, and we're already so busy throughout the day that, um, and with being a high volume territory, I have a lot of product on hand, especially since I keep a wide variety of product um, at one of our biggest accounts who um, does about 10 to 15 trials. What advice would you give someone either wanting to pursue a career as a clinical specialist or a TM? So the best advice I would give somebody starting out in um, medical device or neuromodulation specific is that it's definitely, it's, it's not easy. But if you find passion within the job or whether that being, you know, helping others, building a company's brand is, you know, it's whenever you feel like you just want to quit some days, you want to fall back on that, on that passion of why you're here, what you're doing it for, because it, it all comes down to your why. And that will, you know, kind of reset you and re, re shift your mindset on things um, because it's not easy. You're going to have a hard time. You're going to have days where you put in, 12 to 13 hours of, you know, from the time you pull out all your driveway, from the time you pull back in and you're just like, what did I sign up for? But ultimately it comes down to why you're doing this and who you're doing this for. So, What are some of the best resources, not necessarily people, but resources that have helped you along the way? A Lego. <laughs> I, a Lego is such a neat tool. And when they, when I, when they rolled this out, um, it's, I think, I believe it's fairly new when I joined. Because um, I remember when I was in training, Travis and Dale were talking about how great of a tool it is. Um, but it's basically a search bar or a Google search bar within Abbott Neuromodulation. They have anything and everything you could possibly think of um, for all resources that you might need from patient calling to, you know, talking to a physician about a, a certain article or kind of how to host an event or what to expect in an OR, what troubleshooting experiences, you name it, it's it's there. So so can you name a couple of people who have been um, really beneficial to you or the most influential and helped you along the way? Yes, I'll have to start out with Evan Richardson. He's a TM3 down in Austin, Texas. He's the one that actually, you know, answered a lot of my questions um, in regards to the job. And then as well as Chris Rodriguez and Taylor Rodriguez, they really kind of helped me, you know, get prepped for this job and they actually put in a good word for me to get up here to the Minnesota territory. Um, and then um, I would also say Gigi Gilland. Um, she is the territory three manager. I'm aligned to. Um, we, um, so I help her, um, our team that covers um, a partial piece of Minnesota. Um, she's just a great um, problem solver and any issue that I, feel like I can't handle she's my go-to on you know what how to handle things and then um Joseph Hudson's also been a great sales piece on you know on how to address um like different scenarios talking to a doctor you know and just working on talk tracks what do you think is one common myth about clinical specialists and that you want to debunk okay I would say the the most common myth um that I, people assume of a clinical specialist is that they use the clinical specialist role as a stepping stone to a stepping stone to get to um, the territory manager or a rep um, sales rep position, which is not necessarily the goal for everybody. Um, A lot of um, clinical specialists are, you know, solely just there for the clinical specialist role. They want to be more hands-on in the clinic and the patient care where, you know, the sales manager, the territory manager, they are solely focused on, you know, finding those in new accounts with, you know, of course, the clinicals are going to assist with that as needed. But, you know, they're they're big into numbers producing where um, the clinicals, you know, really focus on patient care and helping the, the territory manager grow that clinic within. So I would say that's the big one. If you could improve anything with any of our devices, what would it be? The Apple iPod software update, having to use an Apple ID. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, that's, that's such a good thought. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know how many times myself and my team have to go back to figure out what a patient's Apple ID is, 
now, granted, moving forward, we're really good about documenting it. Um, but prior to, you know, when they were new, some of these different territories do it differently. So if maybe we just were able to set one primary Apple ID account or, you know, bypass it and with the app already downloaded on it, it just would prevent a lot of patients getting locked out of their iPods. I think that's a great idea. I, like if the app already came downloaded, like automatically that would solve a lot of problems. It would. <laughs> I, um, I totally agree with you. If you had an extra, you know, million dollars in the the budget, <laughs> uh, how would you spend it? I would say there's a couple different ways I would spend it, but my number one would be on investing in MRI approvals, being able to take away different impedance levels further than they have, um, just because that is the number one struggle and my least favorite part of the job, actually, is having to navigate and talk my way around patients um, getting an MRI or not. Does anything make you super excited about the future? What are you really excited about right now? The main thing I'm looking forward to is getting out of my house. Um, once this whole COVID-19 thing has released, um, just going back to what I had said about the number, one of the things that I love about this job is not having to sit in one spot. Um, I'm looking at a computer screen all day. Um, I like to be a, out in the field, working from place to place, interacting with people face to face. Um, I'm not a big communicator via text and email a whole lot of the time, and I've been spending a lot of time doing that. And so, and just, you know, being hands-on and working with the equipment is... Well, Amber, it's been great chatting with you. Um, thank you so much for joining us and bringing Taylor into the conversation. Um, yeah. Well, have they, Hopefully you're not having too much snow up in Minneapolis right now, and you know, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Um, thanks for, you know, spending time with me and getting to chat about what we love about the job. So thank you. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us today on our conversation with Taylor and Amber. Both are such an incredible delight and we're a pleasure to speak with. Please join us for our next episode where Michael Maswick and I pick the brain of former CS turned champion rookie at Abbott, Waylon Altair. The CS background is, is like one of the large reasons why I'm successful now. Uh, that transition was a process and having that background, I just lean on it all the time. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Clinical Specialist and Neuromodulation Podcast. <laughs>